Pros. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at thecoalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you. In this episode, I speak with Anita Orban. Anita shares her inspiring story growing up in Hungary, back then a satellite country of the Soviet Union, and then starting her professional life as an academic, researching Russia's use of energy as a tool of foreign policy. Her work caught the attention of the Hungarian government, asking her to turn her groundbreaking findings into policy in a newly created ambassadorial position. Followed a fascinating career within government and later in the private sector. We revisit her seminal insights from the perspective of the 2022 Russia-Ukraine war, talk about her lessons learned on leadership and what she's up to today. So hi, Anita. I am absolutely delighted uh, that we uh, managed to connect today to record this podcast together. It's been a few years since we, we first met um, and we'll, we'll touch on that uh, amazing encounter and how that happened. But first of all, just thank you for making the time today on this public holiday to, to come on the show. Phil, thank you so much for reaching out. And uh, I was quite delighted to receive your email after so many years of break, which was due to COVID and you moving away. Yes, it's true. Uh, and uh, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's it's a really interesting story how we how we connect. Actually, we we were we were introduced to to one another um, by our mutual connection, uh, Arthur. And uh, there's this like mini universe that revolves uh, around the, the Fletcher School, uh, and that connected uh, connected us in this way uh, through the Fletcher School, through our interest in in in, uh, in energy and just our general curiosity about how the world works. Absolutely. And if you recall, Arthur finished Fletcher when he was like 60, maybe. And I served with him on Fletcher's European Advisory Board. That's how he knew me. And did he go into into the same class with you? Yes, the uh, GMAP program, uh, some sort of kind of mid-career, part-time executive program. Yes. And since you worked at Shell, or you work at Shell, and I worked in an energy company, and I think he just thought that it would be good for the two of us to meet, right? Yeah, so it's exactly. quite incredible. And he invited us to one of those clubs in London, and uh, we made it a regular habit. We met like a few times. Indeed, yes. And maybe since we're on the theme of these um, uh, connections and, and that uh, long view of, of uh, friendships over time, I'd like to actually maybe bring you all the way back to your, 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 your origins and your, 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 your early life. So you're from, from, you're from uh, Hungary, a uh, small country, um, but I'd love to hear how it was like growing up. What was going on uh, in your family and what were you talking about at the dinner table? That's a very interesting question. As a... In, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question because I was born during uh, the communist times. So when I literally, when I grew up, up until the uh, high school, it has been, uh, Hungary has been a pretty much a socialist country. And I grew up in the countryside and my family chose, interestingly, not to talk about it. So I kind of grew up in a very apolitical environment 
where uh, the strategy or the tactic of the family was, if we don't talk about it, then it's not, you know, it doesn't exist or we can't make a mistake, right? And uh, so so I, I grew up uh, not knowing too much about politics, but then the change came in 89, which impacted us quite a bit as everyone. And since uh, my hometown was near to the Romanian border, and uh, the revolution in Romania was quite dramatic. That has been a life-changing experience. And that's when things started to open up and become clear what's happening and what's going on. You have a memory of that time? Or is there an, an event around that time that, that kind of made you realize, like having not um, spoken about politics in your family, like, that? oh, yeah, there's some, something strange there happening? Uh, actually, it dates back earlier in the 80s when, when you remember then every year we had like three, two or three times in a row a Soviet leader passed away. And, and I made a comment when we were in front of the television, the whole family watching uh, the funeral, and I made a comment that, oh, every year someone passes in, <laughs> in the Soviet Union. And my mom said that you are not supposed to say that. <laughs> and that's when you know that something is going on here. Uh, but you don't know yet what, and you didn't dare yet to ask back, why not? But, uh, but you know, all these secrets, which, 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 which you know that, that it's a secret, so something is not okay here. I have memories of my, my own childhood, uh, also sensing that. So I grew up in Switzerland, but we, we had uh, Czech friends, uh, and now and then Czech British, and now and then uh, the, the, the Czech grandparents would come and visit. And it was a, a real big adventure that they got uh, exceptional permission to come and stay a few months in Switzerland. And um, I remember my father saying that they, they had to cross the Iron Curtain. So as a 10-year-old, I was imagining uh, climbing over an iron wall, what it must look like, and then they would disappear for a while. Um, and then I remember, of course, watching the Berlin Wall fall down. And th that's when I realized, oh, um, it, it's not a, an iron uh, thing. It's more a stone thing. So that was the level of my understanding. <laughs> yes, but you know, when you grow up, something's unnatural for you, which... Uh which you later on looking back seem very strange and know that we talk about this. It brings back quite many memories of, I remember like uh, my dad running home saying that bananas arrived to the store, <laughs> you know, and then, <laughs> and then he, he, he goes and queues so that we have bananas because it happened like once every uh, few months or once a year. And, and I also recall that in 86 or 87, we went for holiday to back then it was Czechoslovakia and and they were bananas in the summer and I remember the adults in the because we were a big uh, group of uh, uh, like 40 people you know several families and I recall the adults talking that wow the Czech Czechoslovaks uh, may do something really well and they may have all this relationship with African countries that they have bananas the whole year and I was like so <laughs> such an interesting observation but yes in, in this sense I could go on and on of how all of us were wearing the same clothes as because there was literally one textile company and you li you lived through that uh, change as well uh, of, of suddenly having a lot of choice and which was uh, which interestingly you would think and with our eyes you think now that of course that's what you want but but I lived through and heard adults who used to ha have the stability of work, the stability of life, and suddenly everything changing around them. And with too many choices, it's not always 
live through as something which is good, but something which makes life more difficult. And that echoes a, a friend of mine who grew up in, in Russia who described the trauma of suddenly having to choose uh, when she had never done that. Um, she, 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 she broke down in tears, actually, the first time that that, that occurred. Yeah. But the, yes. <laughs> but yes. the, the, the reason also I was asking about your childhood is because um, I, I know you, 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 um, you, you uh, pursued an, an, an early life that took you through uh, research in academia. Um, and and I'd, I'd love to hear if it, what planted the seed for that and this kind of early early direction in life, what led you to that? If you could share a bit about that. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I would say that I did know what I don't want to become, but I didn't know what I want to deal with. I knew uh, that I don't want to become a lawyer. Then you, you know, cross out law, uh, law school. You don't know you don't become. You don't want to become a doctor. You don't become a teacher. And hence, I wanted to open opportunities. And I went to the Ikan University. So I saw that everything that you know can create a wide range of opportunities. And when it comes to research and academia, that was a pure self-reflection. That I knew that unless I push a rigorous academic interest on myself, I am more a generalist than somebody who is interested deep diving topics. So I created myself clearly when I also, in the Fletcher after master, I went for PhD, a rigorous framework so that I learn uh, the rigorous thinking, academic thinking, and deep dive into a subject area, so develop an expertise. And you chose energy. Why, yes. why, why, why is that? Oh, that that became by by coincidence. I didn't choose energy. I chose foreign policy and foreign affairs. So at Fletcher, uh, when I entered the PhD program, I was like, okay, what can be my value added here? What makes me interesting? What makes me unique with my background? And uh, speaking Russian, coming from the uh, you know former Soviet or satellite country, uh, I I offered as a research topic post-Soviet, so meaning after 1990, uh, foreign policy, Russian foreign policy towards Central Europe, which is our region, meaning Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary. And the more I researched, the more I realized that um, as we understand foreign policy coming from, a, uh, you know, starting with the foreign policy doctrine and the strategy and building relationship with these countries, that doesn't exist. So it was very practical that I can't fill in a, a few hundred pages of PhD with something which doesn't exist. But when I was researching, I realized that, interestingly enough, Russian energy companies are the ones which are talked about in our region. Russian energy companies are the ones which seem to, to develop some kind of strategy towards Central Europe and not the state. And uh, and that's when I, I had to change, literally, out of necessity, the research question I was asking, that is it really the state or the Russian energy companies which are driving foreign policy here? And that's how I ended up in energy, because I asked pretty much a wrong research question, which led me to the right research question as time proved it. And that's how I ended up in energy, by chance, literally, by luck. And I'm really happy for that, by the way. And uh, it, it sounds amazing how, how timely also your, your research was uh, around uh, ending around 2007, I believe. Uh, yes, yes. Writing about um, energy security and, and, and Russia, which was also your, your, your thesis was, was also ended up being published uh, as, a, as a book, Power, Energy and the New Russian Imperialism in uh, 2008. Um, so highlighting the, the way the Russian Federation uses its... Um, 
position as energy supplier to maybe even create a dependency that it, it's been able to exploit through a range of means, uh, even predating um, uh, Vladimir Putin. So I'd love to hear um, how, how, how this work was received and, and how, I mean, it sounds strange to be having this conversation with you in 2023 was when people are like duh of course we know that but but back then uh, it was it's, 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 there's an element of, of a probably contrarian even contrarian uh, perspective uh, there and uh, i'm really curious how, how how you were received and and what, what happened i have to tell you it was really really contrarian because i took quite a time to finish phd so even though i published in 2007 not no uh, i finished the phd in 2007 i started the phd in 2001 so 2001 i came with the foreign policy related question and it became clear uh, as i as i just explained that this is not the right question so around early 2002 i already had that research question in mind that it's really the russian energy companies which are executing russian foreign policy or and driving russian foreign policy so the real interest here is and i already made actually um that these you you cited the title of my book the you also have to give a title to your phd thesis and my working title has been all along, tanks have left and briefcases are back. <laughs> and and uh, pretty much uh, uh, I said, you know, that the Soviet Union withdrew, but there are other ways and means via which uh, Russia is trying to reinsert its influence via the region. And that is via energy companies. And back then I examined only oil and natural gas companies. Today, you may also want to add nuclear. And uh, how was it received? Uh, it was so interesting, first of all, uh, to get the interviews. You could easily feel that there were two types of people, one the denying the other, knowing that I am here on something. And I had a couple of mysterious interview circumstances as well. When the interviewee picked me up and we drove out of the, of the capital, and went into a small restaurant uh, uh, several 10 kilometers uh, away. And of course, nobody allowed to use his or her uh, name. And when I started to test the ideas, I went through the entire cycle of uh, when you start something from new, where you arrive to, oh, we have known it all along. First, I was literally singled out at conferences that, oh, this is literally crazy, uh, whatever she's saying, especially by by the established uh, researchers and academia whom I was challenging. And then I entered the phase when it was like half and half. Half of the audience was thinking that I am up to something. Half of the audience was absolutely against. Then it was the period when, when there was literally, when after a speech I, I went off the, the stage, then, then there was literally queue, uh, meeting and, uh, and uh, congratulating. Uh, and then, when the first crisis happened, which was obvious, that was 2006. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the first Ukrainian crisis where everybody dates as the first open and not covered uh, mean of, uh, of Russia trying to use uh, natural gas supplies as, uh, as, uh, as a tool. And 2009, when it even stopped supply, uh, for almost uh, uh, two weeks. That was when it became pretty much axiom. And then after a few years, you are still referred to. And then 
you are totally forgotten. Uh, that's that's the end of the story. Everybody behaves that uh, that this is what we have known along, and uh, and then uh, it becomes an axiom. So it's really interesting to see the the whole uh, curve of uh, of starting something new and it becoming like the the common and uh, accepted knowledge. And beyond that, even that uh, an element of denial that that, uh, that that we didn't know about it all along. That, that I find that that fascinating as well. That last. Oh, totally denial. Yeah. No, 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 no. Absolutely, hundred percent denial. Or no self-reflection. Um, yeah. And I'd love to get back to that topic in in a little while. But um, I'm really fascinated by how uh, this piece of work opened doors for you. Uh, to move into into the diplomatic world, I'd, I'd love if you could share some of that. And um, I don't think we've spoken much about it when when we met before. But your 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 work as um, ambassador for energy security sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'd, I'd love if you could share a bit how that came about. Was was there ever a a position filled uh, with that title, or were you the first? Yeah, I was I was the first. Absolutely, right. I was the first. Thought, yeah. Before me, there was an ambassador of Nabucco, which was a big, big pipeline project from yeah. Azerbaijan to, to Hungary. That position existed, I think, for a year. But interestingly, that position was more a political statement position because the back then, we are talking about 2008-9, the question was phrased whether Central European countries are... Uh, supporting the so-called South Stream pipeline, which was another Russian project, but on a different route, non-Ukrainian route, or they are supporting the Vuko pipeline, which was also a different source, like Azerbaijan and going all the way to Turkey. So that position was more like a, a, a statement by Hungary before me, saying that we are supporting a pipeline which not only a uh, different route, but also different uh, source. So how it came about, it was 2010 when the future foreign minister contacted me. By then I had my book out. I was uh, absolutely 100% in academia, think tank world, pretty vocal about my research, publishing a lot, also regularly like weekly op-ed pieces, op-ed, uh, pieces and, uh, and so on. And uh, he approached me and said that, okay, do it better. Okay, show me, now you know the theory, show me how, how to do it wow. and uh, and come on board. And they literally created this position uh, from, from scratch. I started uh, with one uh, diplomat support and, uh, and an assistant. But if I can pause you for a second, because yes. I'm, I'm just trying to think this through. So it meant that there was somebody, that, that foreign minister, who must have been keenly aware of the issues that you were highlighting, uh, yes. pro- probably finding it difficult to, I assume it's a man, but but um, correct me if I'm, I'm It was not. a man, yeah. And, and assuming that um, it, it would be extremely hard to do anything differently, right? So, so it sounds like he welcomed your policy uh, recommendations to, to, to do what nobody had, had done in a way. Is that, is that fair to say? It must have been a really exceptional person. Yes, it's absolutely fair you say, to say, and you are hitting something quite uh, important here. And that's, that's what, what, what's really uh, fascinating uh, uh, is that you understand and you accept that, yes, that's the academic reality, Yes, Russia is or may misuse, you know, its power and uh, and the, the pipeline system and dependency on, on, on gas creates a political vulnerability. But the question is whether you as a, 
as a government or a you know foreign minister or prime minister or chancellor whether you believe that this can create how much does it worth to you politically and commercially to build alternatives and and let me cite one one example here uh, germany germany has been saying all along uh, when I, after the ambassadorial position, I, I work for U.S. LNG companies. They have been telling all along that, you know, even during the Soviet times, the supply of natural gas hasn't been an issue. And we saw four LNG regasification projects in, uh, in Germany under preparation and pretty much shower ready mm. and waiting for the green light. They haven't happened for years. And now after the war, three of them literally overnight or within months. So so this is the gap which I was asked pretty much by the foreign minister to, to close, but this takes an enormous amount of time. And I can cite you numerous other examples, like, for example, the Greek-Bulgarian interconnector, where Bulgaria was aiming to connect its natural gas system with a, with a new interconnector pipeline with Greece, and that project was also in the making for 10 years by the time it happened. So, so, so the question is, how much is the, really the political will sometimes to, and how much does it cost and how much is it worth for a country to create uh, alternatives? And what I have been tasked is pretty much negotiating and, and dealing with all the potential alternatives from Azerbaijan via LNG, via interconnecting the, the, the neighboring uh, systems. And, and, and that's fascinating. So, so um, the, the room, the freedom to, to act is very, very constrained because the cost of the alternatives are super high and convincing people um, that there's a need to do something in the absence of an immediate crisis is, is really hard. Whereas when there is a crisis, you can mobilize people, but by then it's too, too late because of the lead time and all of that. That's exactly the dilemma. And if you look at the entire Europe, countries chose different hmm means and different strategies. So Poland was the, uh, together with Lithuania, the frontrunners of, of, of uh, choosing non-Russian sources, which may have at that time caused them more. But the political will was so strong and across parties that both countries went ahead. So these were the two countries which were not taken by surprise by, by, by events of last February, because they literally build their alternative supplies. So it's, it's, it has been fascinating to watch all the countries. And also, these are huge infrastructure needs. You know it very well. Plus, there are a lot of, lot of incumbents in, in, in the entire vertical chain who are not necessarily interested, or moreover, who are not interested at all in any change. And you, you, I'd like to go back to what you were saying about Germany having uh, regas terminals ready, uh, but but uh, not having pressed the button. So for our listeners who are less familiar with LNG, if you want to buy LNG, you need what's called a regas terminal, so that you can bring a ship in and and then and then turn that that uh, cold liquid gas into something that you can put in your pipes. And that that's a can't remember what they cost, but uh, two three billion dollars or something like that. I, I'm not sure. It takes a few years to build. You surely know more about that, but. This, 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 is, um, this may be a far-fetched analogy, but this goes back to, to what we discussed a few minutes before of your choices, right? When you are on a pipeline, end of a pipeline, you don't have any choice, only to buy 
from whoever is the other end, right? And these pipelines are usually vine-based streets. So pretty much that's given, that's strategic, it has been decided, that's you inherited, and that's it. So, so you buy from one source. But as soon as we talk about LNG, then the whole world opens up with all its scariness and all its opportunities, right? Because you will become suddenly... Uh, subject to the global gas market, which is now developing due to LNG. It's literally as much as it has been regional, now it's global. The number you cited is um, is um, is um, when you look at the whole vertical chain of uh, of, of of liquefying natural gas. And oh, let's start one more step back. Uh, the liquefying natural gas is pretty much needed when you want to transport natural gas between continents. So it's nothing different. Uh, it's the same natural gas which you would pipe uh, the transport on pipeline. That's just uh, just a necessity so that you can put it into 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 tankers. There, uh, when you look at the entire vertical chain, the biggest capex and cost is on the liquefaction side. So whoever is liquefying, being that Qatar, Australia, or the US, and a regasification terminal, you can build uh, from several hundred million. Uh, uh, euros to up to uh, more, of course, depending on the side and depending whether you do it on a ship, regasification ship, which can go as low as like, I don't know, 100 something million, or whether you do it um, onshore. So the biggest chunk of, of the cost is on the on the liquefying side. And what happens when you buy liquefied natural gas? Then you are pretty much subject to a very different indexation, different pricing, a different way the commodity arrives on the pipeline. It comes all all the time, right? In in a in a uninterrupted uninterrupted flow, hopefully, and and on ships it comes in chunks that creates with it also a storage uh, uh, needs and 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 couple of other ways of looking the whole industry. Mm. This I'd like to to um, go back to you actually in in switching from from this world of academia to this world of of government how, how that changed you because you 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 were you were relatively you you were a young academic researcher with very strong views around what should be done better uh, and then boom you you move into a, a a place where it's the real world um there are constraints that are quite ugly in terms of uh, how things work. How, how, what, how that changed you? How did that change your worldview? And also, what, how did it change what you wanted to do? Uh, this is a very good question. It's, uh, first, it was absolutely professionally a fascinating and fulfilling, uh, interesting uh, environment uh, to work in the ministry. Second, as I said, I knew that academia is not necessary for me, at least for the short term. I put myself into that sphere for, first of all, because academia gave me the opportunity and the flexibility to work when I wanted to work of my time of choosing. And uh, and we didn't talk about it yet, but I have three kids. They were born in 2003, 2005, and 2009. So this period when I was finishing my PhD, writing my book, going to conferences, publishing a lot, has been absolutely amazing and the conscious decision of someone who wanted to go into motherhood. And, you know, it really gave the flexibility of, 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 uh, of picking the working hours and working from home. 
So that has been absolutely enormous. And secondly, academia, as, as, I, as I told you, I am more a doer and a practitioner and a generalist. So I really created this academic framework for myself so that I, I deep dive into a subject and learn about it and become an expert of, of something. So I was really happy to go into the doing part into 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 the government what was strange for me in the government at the beginning is uh, is is of course the hierarchy and foreign ministries are very very hierarchical and and the rigidity of how you make decisions uh, and it was it was quite hard to understand uh, how it works at the very beginning but as soon as i got it uh, then uh, then then it became more natural the other thing is is uh, it was a bit slower to my pace. <laughs> How I overcame it that that I, I started quite many balls rolling, and <laughs> not only one or two, but but picked quite many topics. I also extended and enlarged my portfolio, and I also became chairwoman of uh, energy cooperation of the Danube countries. That was an EU project parallel with the ambassadorial position, and later on I also got uh, quite many challenges into my portfolio, not only energy security, but everything which is. So so-called a new type of challenge from cyber to climate. And hence, when you also are in a government and pretty senior position, I have to tell you that it's, it's, the, it's, it's endless how many things you can influence in a good way. So if your appetite is big, then you can have your impact on quite many things, dossiers we call. And, uh, and it has been quite a fulfilling and nice experience. Yeah, and it's, it seems to, to, to touch on, on things that you, you went into later in, in, in life through digital and, and, and all of that beyond, beyond energy. So it sounds like already in those days you, 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 were, mm -hmm. you were branching out in, in those spaces. I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit to, still to this energy crisis uh, and to the, 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 uh, the recent war with, with Ukraine and just ask your view about somebody who knows these issues so well. Um, do you think... Germany was fully aware of the dependency it was creating um, and also of how interlinked its industry was to, to piped gas um, ar around uh, the, the, the February 2022 timeframe. What's your read of that? It's, it's interesting the way you asked the question, whether this was aware or not. I think the hardcore uh, figures and numbers were crystal clearly proving that. The question is whether you believe the argumentation which was given that even Soviet times, there has never been a crisis and the natural gas supply has been continuous. And that's also a fact and true. So the question is, it has been a mutual dependency because as we talked about it, on the receiving end of the pipeline, you can't buy from anyone else, but also on the supplier side of the pipeline, you can't send it to anyone else either. And if you look at from from uh, from Russian supplier point of view, most important, far the most important market for Russia has been Germany and Italy. And even in my book, I argued in 2008 that Gazprom is looking those markets from commercial point of view, but those markets in between, which are the transit markets, that's where commercial is mixed with political And many, many times I detect that political considerations override the commercial ones. So even I argued in my book in 2008, 
who was already thinking along what's happening today, that that Germany is different and distinct because that's more or less a, a, a commercial relationship looking from Gazprom's point of view. So it's uh, it's it's really hard. Uh, and I, as I left the academic sphere, I have been thinking though, Phil, uh, lately, last year, I was tempted to write the continuation of my book. This <laughs> could have been a bestseller, but uh, I didn't feel I was very busy with job and didn't feel the urge to do it. And now going back and doing the interviews with all the experience I gained, in the LNG industry, in the government, and knowing what's happening geopolitically, maybe I should commit <laughs> and take some article and just do it because it would be fascinating to know. I've got, I've got an associated question there. Only question is, do you think like around February 2022, like Europe or Germany, were, were they aware that trying to disconnect from Russian energy, like what it would do in terms of energy prices, in terms of putting environmental priorities on the back burner and even this dynamic of if you suddenly rush on the market to buy LNG, then you're going to take that LNG from other countries that are going to be in trouble or unable to buy any alternatives. Honestly, I think I think even showed that that no. Yeah. They didn't think of it. They didn't uh, think of it realistically that this can be a, an issue, that it can create the price volatility or price hikes. It, it, it created, it can create real effective shortages when we are talking about potentially uh, closing down industry, right? Or, or curtailing uh, consumption. So I think everybody was caught totally by surprise. And today, do you think, um, how, how would you judge the, the level of literacy around these energy issues and managing what we call the, this trilemma uh, between affordability, sustainability and security? Um, uh, yeah, j j just keep, keep, keep to get your read on, on are we clued up today? Are we going in the right direction or, or, or not? I would love to turn this question back to you because now, you know, I am uh, I am now not in the energy industry for the last <laughs> two years, but you are. And I'm curious what you think. My immediate reaction or reaction has been all along that this crisis did quite a good to all the aspects of the triangle. And even though we may see that energy security now is back into the forefront, which nobody talked about it two and a half years ago or three years ago, right? You know that. Everybody talked about the affordability and, and the sustainability of the triangle. But I think that European population reacted quite remarkably uh, in, in this winter with all the savings and all not taking energy and the cheap energy granted any longer and how we are now much more conscious how, how we save electricity how we are turning down heating optimizing heating and 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 all this so i think this energy security crisis and the super high prices made a lot of good for 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 us thinking much more consciously about energy transition and uh, and and having the energy efficiency angle, which policymakers so many times emphasized, but maybe there wasn't enough push on it. But now look at it, how much we saved in our energy usage and consumption as residential uh, in, in the last few months. But what do you think? Yeah, I think my personal view is we're going through a period of a bit of schizophrenia as well um, between the, these tensions about 
um, the the need for 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 companies to um, be focused and and deliver real value, um, and 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 the need to accelerate the transition. So I think we've moved beyond uh, a debate about uh, advocacy, and uh, and and really trying to to go through the nuts and bolts. So especially in in markets in in the U.S. and in in, in Europe. Um, there's really a, a much more constructive dialogue between uh, public sector and private sector in 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 uh, developing um, the kind of infrastructure and like legal uh, regulatory infrastructure that creates stability for uh, for investment and for uh, promoting low carbon businesses. I'm thinking about um, this uh, CBAM uh, set of rules that will. Um, um, incentivize um, non-European companies to to decarbonize their products or face a tax. So I think that's happening, but I still think there's significant uh, um, pull in in contradictory directions uh, for, for a lot of companies. Um, so should should they make sure that they are um, uh, um, res responsible in their cr value creation, uh, or should they be focusing primarily on on uh, decarbonizing as soon as possible? And, and many companies haven't um, um, I, I, made up their mind yet. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That'd be my my view. And and, and th this topic, I think, is exceedingly hard to communicate to the public, um, mm -hmm. given uh, a public that is uh, that is that is that is more and more pressured uh, in in terms of uh, cost of living, especially in in the markets we're talking about, and especially in Europe, actually. No, it's, it is the topic of the day, for sure. One of the topics of the day. I'd, I'd like to uh, ask you to share a bit about what happened next uh, when you moved back into, or sorry, not back, but when you moved to the <laughs> private sector. Uh, if you and I've always been struck by your stories or story about um, moving worlds, uh, like local, global, academia, government, private, and, and then in both directions as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear, hear a bit about um, what, what happened next. Uh, the government was about five years, and then I was approached by Chenier, which which is the market-leading US LNG company, to, to help them develop their Central European business. And that's when I exited the government. It sounded like fascinating and amazing opportunity. And this is also closed uh, uh, the full circle because uh, when it comes to energy, I have done the academia, I have done the government, and then I, 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 set, I, I, I set over to the, to the private and, uh, and, and did the private side of, 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 uh, of argumentation and convincing for the entire region, uh, Central Europe, of, of, of diversifying with LNG. And uh, from Chenier, uh, I, 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 I left to Tellurium, which was a startup uh, uh, funded and, and started by the founder of Chenier. Uh, after he left Chenier, he pulled quite a few people with him and I was among those. And it was, re it was also fascinating to sit from the market leader to a startup. <laughs> When uh, when uh, when I when I joined Chenier, what was the interesting experience that LNG people started to talk about it, but even though it was the market leader and the first in the US, still in Central Europe, I had to introduce the name of the company. But by the time I left, it was it was uh, you know a pretty well known uh, company in the industry. And then when I switched, that started all over again, introducing a brand new uh, startups name in the in the in the LNG field. 
it has been altogether five years and um, and uh, and working um, uh, quite a bit on policy and regulatory in Europe, as well as developing new markets, and not only in, in Central Eastern Europe, but also in uh, in Western Europe. As I said, quite uh, uh, many talks and discussions and developing together the alternatives for Germany. But I also worked a bit on countries outside of, of Europe, uh, namely Morocco or Vietnam uh, and, uh, and Indonesia. So, so as you said it, in Hungary, I was in charge of one country, energy security as an ambassador. Uh, and in this was a totally different perspective because, uh, because my geographic portfolio absolutely widened. Uh, and uh, uh, and that's it, yeah. And also out of London, that's also another. We had our headquarters for both companies in London, the European uh, region, and uh, and I, I relocated also my focus uh, uh, to London. And you also were recognized as one of or the most influential uh, women in, in 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 Hungary. You have a very high profile in your in your country. Uh, clearly, you, you you're also enjoying that ability to 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 do something for your country. I'd love if you could um, share a little bit about um, that. Um, what's driving you as well, or what's um, uh, what what are some of the issues that are dear to your heart when you when you look at your your home home country and where it is today. And after uh, this uh, few, and I already uh, implied uh, this, after this uh, few years in energy companies, I, I changed to digital and uh, telecommunications. And uh, and uh, 2021 January, I became deputy CEO, deputy chairwoman of Vodafone Hungary. Uh, how it came about? It, it must sound like a big transition from from uh, industries across, so from energy to. Uh, to to telco from sales to external affairs, which has been part of the portfolio is corporate security, PR, communication, legal, regulatory, government relations. So it's a very different portfolio. And from global, local, right? So I pretty much moved back uh, entirely to the to the Hungarian market, and and that's when when I I got, could focus um, again on on Hungary. And um, and what has been very important is uh, is that uh, in Vodafone we have done quite a bit to we call it social contract, which means our 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 informal our framework agreement with the society and government how we bring to the country more digitalization how we bring more digital education digital literacy and how we as as a very important position of mine has been on the board of the Vodafone Foundation, where we had a lot of new ideas to flourish and to, to be launched, which all helps make our life easier via the means of digitalization, from education through health to so startups. I have been also mentoring quite a bit within the company as well as externally. I always uh, find and feel very important to share experiences, share knowledge and help each other, help next generations, help our generation uh, with opportunities to, to open up. And I was really honored to be named as one of the, as, as you said, one of the most influential women. You're now working in, in, in um, telecom, squarely digital space. Um, I wanted to... So there are a few thoughts that come to my mind because 
uh, if reflecting on on our conversation uh, and conversations in the past you, you have this really unbelievable background of of deep as you said deep subject matter expertise that you you understand research you understand issues you've you've got this policy re government experience and polit like executing complex things in in a, in a in a political setting that has that meets the reality of uh, like um, population concerns and things like that uh, popular concerns um, and then you've got that that corporate experience so you've got that 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 vantage point and also what struck me uh, listening to to you is you're somebody who seems really um, like animated by um, big things that affect our world um, and so I'm, I'm, I wanted to ask you where you are today what are you seeing that's kind of the the energy crisis of the 2002 or three like of that type of um, uh, magnitude what are you seeing today that's concerning you or worrying you I can't I can't read a newspaper these days without having somebody warning about AI uh, so I hope you're not going to do the same but uh, <laughs> what, what is what is top of mind for you what what is something that is maybe one of the the, the blind spots that that that, uh, that that we're under right now this is also a very interesting question I'm not sure I know any blind spots <laughs> because they would, most likely wouldn't be blind spots um, and as uh, and I am really in the daily very corporate world so not in the academia thinking and asking questions and then asking uh, counter questions I think there are quite many challenges especially that we are going with such a such a fast pace or I may just feel it with age but definitely the world is changing uh, enormously and uh, and the challenges are absolutely many many so-called new type of challenges which we haven't thought before like 10 or, or 15 years ago and and what we uh, what i may say that what very yes ai it's uh, it's it's also uh, quite a discussion with my kids also is it is it the same <laughs> like it was television before and we were all worried, right? Or internet or cars when everybody said the word is over or is it something different now? Uh, or, or is it just uh, that everybody is, is, is afraid of the new, new technology? So I think that the layers of challenges are multiple now from individual, mental, psychological, social, how digital world, how potentially, you know, everything will impact us, how COVID impacted us individually as well as as a society. I think also uh, the whole AI and, and the fast developing of, of robotics and machines is also brings quite many new questions and issues with themselves and challenges. Then the whole what we already talked so much we have we was, our has been known for years the whole cyber security space disinformation and consciousness of individuals and societies societal mindset and the whole environment which is nothing uh, new but it's still a persistent how we as a, as a preserve what we have. Uh, uh, in the globe, as well as the, unfortunately, the traditional security challenges are not 
past either. So I think what I would say is that we are entering a super complex world with so many dimensions. I'm not sure anybody can oversee all of it. And that will be quite challenging how you tackle in what order and what emphasis you give on, 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 on the various uh, uh, different issues. So quite many out there, but we do also know quite much as, a, as human beings. And the pace and the innovation is absolutely incredible what we are seeing today. And I also wanted to um, ask you more, more of a leadership question, actually, that, that uh, really struck me as, as we were talking today. Um, is is how so? So you you you've been obviously very successful at many different careers, uh, in completely different environments. And I, I wanted to know if I mean, maybe it's something you, you you want to take some time to think about. So, so I don't want to put you on the spot like that. But it's more, more, more like I was wondering to, but lessons on being effective in um, such different worlds so academia uh, i think the importance of persistence publishing and, and thoroughness maybe in government also very different um and then in the private sector now uh, what, what comes to mind if 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 if, if anything um uh, right now on 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 a little bit your personal lessons you take on effective leadership in in all environments First, knowing what you want to achieve. Always clearly have a very, very clear goal. Where do you want to steer? Where do you want to be in, in short term, medium term and longer term? Yeah. And communicating that clearly. Communicating that vision and, and your goal very, very clearly. So having quite many discussions with your colleagues, your team, your peers, as well as your superiors, where you want to steer and aligning, aligning, aligning all the way. Uh, and, uh, and I also never compromise when it comes to the team. When I had any vacancy in my teams, I always looked for the right mm. person until I found the right person. I rather had the vacancy go on for months, months, months uh, to make sure that, 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 uh, that mm. I find exactly the person I was looking for for that particular job. So I, I think this would be the clear goal, the clear communication and, and the team. That's, that's very powerful. Thanks. Thanks. Um, we have this little habit at the end of our episodes to ask a few standard questions. But before before I go there, I wanted to ask you if if there's anything you wanted to 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 share or 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 or, or, or mention on 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 our on our episode today. We haven't talked about Fletcher, which is our common uh, root, right? That's brought us together. And uh, and of course, when I knew that we will be doing this podcast today, you you bring back all the all the memories and uh, how life-changing and personality-changing years they have been uh, to be at Fletcher, to meet everyone at Fletcher, to learn all the various uh, uh, parts of the world, various careers, various interests, which uh, I have been always grateful and continue to be super grateful for because it really changed my my career track. It really changed my personality. It it, it opened the entire world. And and even still today, wherever I go, I always think, you know, who is there from Fletcher and and, and just meet up. And I'm so happy also for this opportunity that we met up thanks to Fletcher. Indeed, indeed. It, it, there's something magical about that, that community, that, that's for sure. Um, and and uh, I did the program in 2013, uh, to, to, uh, finished in, tw in 2014, and in, in, indeed it opened up 
some of the, the, the most fascinating network, uh, and, and not the network in the sense of uh, swapping business cards, but really, uh, uh, as you said, um, being able to feel quite comfortable and quite at home uh, with people who've, who've shared that similar experience. Uh, of course, this podcast is, is, a, is a product of, uh, of that. <laughs> yes, so, so I, I really I just wanted to to say this as uh, as it's 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 really lovely to think back of all those years and and think of all the friends I made there. <laughs> Great. So let, let's go for our, our closing questions then. So first one is: Is there something that you've read recently that you could say changed the way you see the world? Uh, I I just read very recently, like a few months ago. The autobiography of uh, Richard Branson, Losing My Virginity. And uh, this is not a new book, so it's not like uh, it was published uh, uh, recently, but it has absolutely changed, uh, or not changed, uh, you can't change with one book overnight, but it, it, it is part of a series of books. Uh, which is changing uh, uh, my thinking and worldview. And the recent one I am reading is is David Schwartz, and the title is The Magic of Thinking Big. So pretty much also very similar to Richard Branson's that 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 you create for yourself the opportunities if you think big. And if you are are knowing and aware of your capabilities, and testing your limits at the right way and pushing your limits uh, the right way, your mind and heart putting putting them on the right track, then you can create bigger opportunities and most importantly, impact and change the world, right? So, so come up with new, come up with with uh, with uh, with your with your leadership and making an impact, and that's what really uh, is is on my mind lately. Mm, thanks thanks very, very helpful and is there um, a hack or a habit or a ritual that is is improving your life or that that is um, uh, something you can do without uh, i haven't been exercising for <laughs> for ages and then i started really be very serious about exercising a few years ago and now I just I just don't know how I was going on without exercising. And exercise for me means the the morning run, uh, when I literally clear my head, think a lot, and uh, and refresh. And I try to do it almost every day, or I would say five times a week. And no, I literally can don't know how I was going about that. And literally, the sneakers are the first one um, uh, which goes into my suitcase uh, before then any suit or high heel before when I am going on the road. That's that's the that's the that's the no bargain item which has to go into the suitcase. <laughs> Great. And that last one is: Is there a, a, a place that means um, particularly much um, to you? And there is no no one place. I, I like to, to to discover quite many places. I I really do love the house where we live. I I, I really do love the garden. It uh, it uh, it always fills me with peace uh, when I am there. Even whatever I do in gardening or just reading or even working from from outside. When it comes to any geographical city or, um, or 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 country, I wouldn't necessarily name one. My hometown, I love to go back and return. You always get very special feel when you when you cross the sign of the town. It feels like okay, it's a homecoming. Even though I moved from there 30 years ago, <laughs> it still feels a homecoming. 
<laughs> great thank you so much anita i've really really enjoyed our conversation thanks for your for your time that's that's really uh, I'm, i'm very grateful for that Shreya, thank you so much this is a lot of fun so we continue thanks thanks for listening if you're enjoying this podcast there are a few ways you can help please click the follow button on apple podcast spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the coalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you.